joy, a phenomenon that transcends our circumstances, a mystery that confounds the enemies. When the world sees despair and doubt, our joy in Christ sings louder and louder, rising above the temporary and embracing the eternal. From prison cell to palace, from dungeon to deliverance, everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ and seeing His beauty. To be content in all things, to have peace in the midst of anxiety, to rejoice in suffering, the impossible made possible through Christ. Oh, to be found in Him, to be called a citizen of heaven, to be made righteous. How could we do anything but rejoice? All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? It is great to see you today. I have missed you. Now, some of you who've been watching me in the last couple of weeks on social media don't know why, because of the crazy places we've been, but I will tell you, I have been so excited getting back to be home and be here with you today on this Sunday morning. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my trip today, but there'll be more to come on that for sure, but I'm so glad to be here with you. Grateful for our staff team, who does a great job all the time, and especially that of Hilke and Bill, preaching so well when I was gone. Can we thank them? They did a great job. Last couple of weeks. And grateful to be back at it with you today. And here we are in this great series in the book of Philippians, uh, this idea of rejoice. And we're going to look at that a little bit more today and actually kind of wind up. I'll tell you in a minute, we're going to wind up the actual book itself. And then I'll tell you what we're going to do next week. So in your Trinity this week, you have something that looks like this. If you want to get these out, these are your notes to kind of follow along with us today. If you have a Bible, we're in Philippians chapter 4, continuing where Bill left off last Sunday morning. Um, what we're going to do, so today we're going to actually finish the text of Philippians 4, and then what we're going to do next week is a thing we call our series response service. The first time we ever did this was back in the spring, and we just had a great time at the end of this, after this life series, of just kind of talking through, um, this is what we've been covering the last few weeks. Let's kind of go back over it, look at it together, and really have a lot of interaction about it. And that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to look at the book of Philippians together in a very interactive way, lots of participation and being involved and really just kind of get a chance to kind of summarize. This is what God taught us, what we've been learning about uh, over the last couple of months since we started back in September. So join us for that. One thing that would be helpful at the very beginning and throughout this uh, series, we've talked about the need, the, the request that you would be sending us examples of ways that God has answered yes to the things that you've been praying for. You remember when we started out Paul's prayer of thanks for the Philippians uh, was going on in, in the beginning in chapter one. And we've kind of seen that theme. We've seen that basically Philippians is one giant thank you letter uh, that this theme keeps emerging every, every passage we've looked at of Paul's gratitude for the Philippian believers, not just in who they are, but in even in what they've done by really being partners with him in bringing the gospel to new places. So if you, if you have a story of just a way, even especially recently, where God has said yes to something you've been praying about and been walking through, we'd love to hear that. You can do that through our social media sites with Instagram and Facebook, or even just sending an email to the church. And we're going to use those to kind of frame our time together, among other things, next Sunday. So join us back. We'll finish up kind of that whole series wrap up uh, together uh, as a group. Well, I, we have just had the most amazing time, Joanna and I. Just uh, w one thing we didn't get to tell you when we were leaving uh, the a couple weeks ago, was back in March, we had taken about 100 people from Trinity to a conference out in the low desert called Thrive Southwest. And we've been doing that. This was our third year of bringing a big group there. And at the end of that conference, totally unbeknownst to us, we ended up winning this study cruise to the Mediterranean. Just blew our minds. We're like a lot of you, like we don't win anything. You know, we're those people. And now we can never say that again, because we just had the most amazing experience and got to go among all these different places. Um, but we got to see three biblical sites, meaning places where Paul was and that are very known to us in the New Testament. I wanted to show you just a quick thing. I, I was thinking about it on the way back. Um, growing up here in Yucaipa, we had, I had a great aunt and a great uncle that lived in Riverside. 
Uncle Harley and Aunt, Ro- Aunt Doris. And, um, and it's just funny when you think of, you know, the name Harley is just a great name besides motorcycles. And so Uncle Harley would get out and he would get out this, his old st- school projector and we would watch slide upon slide of the Grand Canyon that didn't look any different than the last 70 we had seen. So I'm going to really try not to be Uncle Harley today, but I wanted to show you uh, where we first went to as far as a biblical site was Athens. You can take a look. This is the Pantheon. And uh, looking down below that, you'll see Mars Hill. That's the passage in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching. Take a look at the next slide. And um, that's from the Pantheon looking down. And all it is is a big rock today, but probably to me, one of the most impressive sermons ever in scripture is recorded there from Paul going into a very eclectic, very religious environment and talking about the one true God. And that's where he did it. And you'll note there, this big rock has got a lot of marble on it and it's very difficult to traverse, but we, we wanted to do it to say we've been there. And, and there's this really easy staircase off to the left-hand side. You can just walk up the stairs and get to the top. But I just told Joanna, I said, Hey, we're here. Let's do it. You know, let, you know, as though that means something special, slipping and sliding up this hill. But we did, we got to the top and Joanna looked at me, she's like, I think that would have been a lot easier. And I'm like, you are so right. We'll let you guide our tour a little more than me. But from Athens, we went to Corinth the next day. And what you'll note here in the background, you can see a, a canal. Corinth is a very interesting city in its heyday in the first century when Paul was writing to the Corinthians. It was probably one of the apex cities as far as wealth and commerce. And one of the reasons why, it's on this isthmus where basically there's four miles. What they would do, you could sail around the bottom of the the rest of the Peloponnese or you could go to Corinth and they'd literally put your small boat on um, a cart and they'd roll it four miles and drop it into the other side of the sea. And so Corinth was known for a lot of things, but this canal was built in the 1800s and um, it made the news. Some of you might've seen a couple weeks ago, a cruise ship, the biggest cruise ship ever to go through the canal did. It had about two feet on either side and it made it all the way through. And this was us looking down onto that. At the site of Corinth is uh, one thing we'll even talk about today, the Bema seat. And it was in the the main part of the downtown district was this incredible, um, just has so much kind of meaning to us as we read the New Testament about what Paul writes about there being a Bema seat judgment. And I'll mention that a little bit later today, that that's me next to it. Uh, Then from Corinth to Ephesus, Joanna would say this was her favorite site. And we're at the top of the arena. This is the arena in... um, in Acts where the Ephesians have, they're basically going to a riot mode. Paul bringing the gospel to Ephesus meant that Ephesus was known for its Diana worship at an amazing temple, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And the gospel was going to disrupt idol selling. And so people get all into an uproar and that actual arena is where that riot happened. And it was just so impressive to be there in that space and just consider what had gone on. The next picture is outside of the arena on the way what would have been to the bay at that time and looking back onto the arena. Well, all of the Mediterranean travels were absolutely punctuated with lots of gelato. And so that absolutely had to be important. Um, it was funny. I think that Europe, you know, people in the Mediterranean, the European must have just thought they must not have ice cream in the States because Todd keeps eating it all here. But uh, we just had such a great time getting to do that. And where our trip began was in the city of Rome. Uh, we got two days there to kind of uh, just take in the sights before we got on the boat. And near the our second day, we spent in the Colosseum, which was just so incredibly impressive to consider. And as we walked over the hills and into the forum, we came to this place, and this place sets us up well today. Um, this is a prison that they believe that Peter and Paul were imprisoned in when they were in Rome. And uh, you can walk down into the dungeons and it is gloomy and dark, just like you would expect. And it's powerful to think 2,000 years later, it's not just kind of we think maybe here. It's like, no, this was the spot where these two were imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. 
This has been the theme all throughout our book of Philippians that has just kind of been so impressive to us is that Paul writes of all these big ideas. Today, we're going to close the book with three really big ideas, all the big ideas, but they're thread together with the concept of joy. And Paul writes about life-changing, life-transforming joy in the midst of being in jail for his faith in Jesus. Paul had done nothing criminally wrong. Paul had not been some sort of person who belonged in jail, but simply because he loved Jesus and wanted other people to know about him, that's where he found himself. And that's where this letter to the Philippians is written. So this is a powerful thing for us to consider. And as we look today, we're going to see three big themes, that idea of contentment, the idea of investment, ourselves well and the idea of being a person of influence. So let's take a look in your notes and on the screen. Here's our now what idea as we walk away from today's message is that as you rely on Jesus, invest the resources of your finances and your influence for eternal gain. Look in your notes. Number one, contentment is not based on your resources, but on your reliance. Contentment is not based on your resources, but on your reliance. We're in Philippians chapter 4, beginning of verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced, and there's that word again. We keep seeing joy all throughout this book. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's the verse that you know well. I can do all this, all things, through him who gives me strength. So here's Paul, and he's transitioned. Remember, as Bill finished last week with these ideas, what to put your mind, what to train your mind to think about these things that are good and lovely, that reflect the character and the nature of God. Now he transitions, and again, we see his thankfulness. He's going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute, but he begins by saying, I'm so thankful to you for the way that you renewed your concern for me, your thoughtfulness of me, but let me tell you, that even though in the midst of you meeting some needs, God was going to meet my needs either way. Why? Because I've learned to be content. So look at a couple of things that he tells them. He says that they had had no opportunity to demonstrate their concern for Paul until now. Something had changed, and now they had the opportunity to do so. That word concern, the original Greek word, it's actually a word we've seen 10 times in the book of Philippians. It's been in, uh, translated different ways, but it keeps coming back to the idea of your posture or your approach. So Paul's saying, you have been for me, like we've seen all throughout this letter, a great way to think of the letter of Philippians is just an ongoing thank you letter to this group of believers in Philippi. And so Paul's saying, you have, I, I know for sure that we're on the same team, that you are for me and supportive of the different ways that you're, your posture and your attitude towards me. And he knows it and he wants them to see that he's grateful and he recognizes that. But then he tells them that he isn't really in need though, because he's learned something He's learned this idea of how to be content no matter what. That original Greek word that we translate here is the word learn. Listen to this explanation. It encompasses all the varied experiences of Paul's life described in the next verse. And he's going to talk about how he's, he's been in all these different types of, of mountaintops as well as valleys. He did not learn this lesson in a day, but throughout a lifetime of ups and downs. The laboratory of his life experience provided continuous opportunities for him to learn the attitude of contentment. You might walk out of here today and, and you might even say as we're, as we're sitting here this morning, you know, contentment is something I struggle with. And I knew that before I walked in the door today. It's not a new theme and a new issue for me. And one thing I want to say is that if you're here today and you would say, Todd, and more importantly, Lord, I, I want to adjust my perspective. I want to be a person who really knows what it is to be content. I read these words from Paul, and those are words are elusive to me. I really don't know, if I'm honest, what contentment looks like in my everyday life. I want to know that. Just know, if you walk out of here with that resolve today, it doesn't come in a vacuum where you just begin feeling content. 
Paul is saying, I've learned contentment over the course of my life. And even in the times maybe when he struggled with contentment, he learned what not to do for the future. I want you to know that sometimes we look at different aspects of our lives, times when we failed, and we feel as though that that failure is for nothing, meaning there's no value in having some sort of a failed experience or a failed striking out to do something. And I would just say the thing I constantly remind myself of, because I can get down on me as well when I fail in something, is to say, but you know, I'm actually learning what not to do in the future. So for you, if you've struggled with contentment, know that that journey towards contentment started long before you ever showed up here today, started even in the midst of the failures when you were always discontent. You know what it is to be that. Now the resolve is, God, I want to be something different. And there's is even using those negative experiences, using those failures can be times now when you learn from that to go, you know what, I'm going to do this differently next time. Paul goes on to say, I've been there and I've done that, meaning I've been at the top and I've been at the bottom in terms of resources and in terms of things, and I know what it is to be content either way. One of the things that was really powerful to me, I don't think I'd really thought of until we were on this trip. I can't remember if it was one of our guides or one of the pastors of the group that we were with, but someone mentioned the idea that when Paul, remember Paul before he was Paul, was Saul. And we actually read about that life earlier in this book in Philippians 3. He kind of shares his religious pedigree, as it were. And and one of the things that Paul talks about is that he was a Pharisee. And a Pharisee would have not only meant high moral and ethical and religious standing, it also would have meant a high financial standing. So Paul was well-to-do financially as he was persecuting the church of Jesus, as he was trying to uphold the Jewish law. And then yet, as you read your New Testament, you read about a guy who's consistently not wanting to impose financial strain on a group of people he's bringing the gospel to. So he, he took on a trade or had engaged a trade of tent making. Tent making is exactly what you think it is. It's someone who would sit down with a piece of canvas and they would sew and they would build and they would make tents. And and so think about that. Paul, when he's saying, I know what it is to have plenty, I think he's thinking back to his days of being a Pharisee. I know what it is to be in a financially more than stable, more than adequate place. And I also know what it is to have want. As he was a follower of Jesus and taking the gospel to new regions, he was in times of going, you know what? There is not a lot of financial help here. I'm going to go ahead and sew a tent and make, make a living myself. He was what we'd call bivocational. And he definitely knew what, what not plenty was all about as well. As you're here today, I don't know if you have experienced the different types of extremes. Some of us would say, no, I really haven't been over there, or no, I haven't done that. But Paul would say, I've I've been in both of these quadrants of, of having physical needs met and physical needs in want. And the reality is, I've learned how to be content no matter what my circumstances might be. That's why when Paul says something like this idea, there's a secret to it, you and I resonate with that because we go, you know what? You're right, because that is elusive. I know what it is to be discontent often. This word that Paul uses is the only time it's found in the entire Bible, the first time we see the word content. And interestingly enough, it's a mashup of two words that literally is translated self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Now, when I say that, that should catch you a little bit sideways. Now, wait a second. Paul's saying, I've learned the secret of being self-sufficient. Everything else I read about Paul, I read about a guy who would never claim to be self-sufficient, meaning he would always claim to say, hey, I could not in myself be religious enough to be pleasing to God. I needed Jesus to do that for me. I, in my own strength, didn't have enough to take the gospel to where it needed to go. And in my weakness, Jesus Jesus showed his strength to me. What we keep seeing all throughout Paul's writings and all throughout the book of Acts on his journeys is a very Jesus-dependent Paul, who we would never say is characterized by guys just like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. This guy was absolutely dependent on what Jesus had done for him and the spirit of God living in him. So this this concept seems really awkward. It seems like that's an an ill-fitting word that Paul had learned the secret of being self-sufficient. But as I was doing this study, and by the way, 
I am so incredibly grateful I got to study for this message before I left on my trip. <laughs> I got home yesterday, I was kind of a zombie all day, and I thought, Lord, this would have been really bad trying to pull something together here late in the day, and uh, so I'm grateful for that. But I remember when I was studying a couple weeks ago, getting ready for today, I remember hitting that word and going, well, I got a real question about this. This is not the way Paul ever characterizes himself. And the more that I was reading, that we also read a phrase just a minute ago, the idea of, um, of the secret. I've learned the secret of being content. And I was thinking about it and realizing, you know, another philosophy that was going on back when I was showing you a picture of Athens up at Mars Hill, besides all the religious, was the Stoics. And the Stoics in the first century were a very popular group. They were a very um, esoteric group, meaning a group that was very hard to get into because they talked a lot of mystery and secrets to get into this group. But the whole goal of Stoicism is to be completely self-sufficient. I don't need anyone or anything, and I'm, I'm relatively emotionless in this. That's the Stoic philosophy. And so I think what Paul is doing is actually playing on words that the Philippians would have had influencers around them of Stoicism. And I think he's actually playing off of their terms a little bit. I want to show you what I mean by that. Notice he says earlier, he's learned the secret of being content. And we said a minute ago that the Stoics talked a lot about secret knowledge, that almost like secret handshakes and all these little pathways that you had to really kind of traverse to understand uh, true enlightenment from their perspective. So I think he's actually taking their, the Stoic language and he's flipping it on itself because rather than purport a philosophy of self-sufficiency, he goes on to say the very next words, I can do all things. And you'd think the Stoic philosophy would be, I can do all things because I'm so rough and tough. No, he goes, I can do all things because of Christ who strengthens me. So I think what Paul's doing is he actually, in other words, is saying, I've learned to be self-sufficient by being Jesus-dependent. So there's really no self-sufficiency at all. It's simply a dependence, a reliance upon Jesus. And he says, I've, been, I've learned to do this in every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So look in your notes. This suggests something interesting to us. Contentment is a challenge, not only when things are rough and the valley is deep, but also when things are going well. And you might be tempted to feel self-sufficient because you think you don't need God. I don't think we often think that way. I think we think contentment is a challenge when things, times are lean to be content in this season. But I don't think we often think about, but when things are plenty, that it's a challenge to be content in those times. On our cruise, and I, we've never done, Joanna and I have never done anything like this before. It was just amazingly luxurious, like we couldn't even plan for it or fathom. And I remember it was a good word when one of the pastors giving a devotion one time said, you know, you have to just keep perspective a little bit when you're in this environment, when you find yourself getting irritated that your food took five minutes longer to get to you, okay, when room service didn't show up exactly when you thought. You, you can tend to lose perspective. And that's one thing that can happen when times are great. Enough is never enough. And that's one reason why contentment is such a challenging thing to try to live in apart from this rootedness, this foundation in Christ, is because even when you feel like you are where you wanted to be, it's still not enough. But another reason why contentment is hard when times are plenty is because we live in anxiety of losing it. I don't want to do anything to mess this up. I don't want to let this amount of resource or this, this season go. And what we are forgetting is life is always about seasons. Our circumstances are always changing, but that's why when we find our contentment in the accomplished work and the reliance upon Jesus, that's why contentment is something we can live in no matter what. I love the way this commentator wrote it. It's in your notes. Look at this quote. He says, Paul's joy in the Lord was not heightened by prosperity, or diminished by poverty. His concern for the welfare of others was not distracted by living in plenty or in want. His contentment and prosperity did not lead him to self-indulgence or self-aggrandizement. Having material things did not become his reason for joy. Acquiring material things did not make him greedy. Protecting material things did not make him anxious." That's just so incredibly well said. And I think that covers the idea of what we're talking about of what does it mean to be content in plenty or in want? 
A lot of times, indeed, our struggle with contentment is when there is what seems like a lack of financial resources or wanting to go after finances. Look at the way that Paul wrote it, the same Paul, to a pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we ought to live after, strive for. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be, there's that word, content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul has much to say in this letter and in his letter to Timothy about the value of contentment and where contentment's found. And contrary to what our culture would scream, that contentment is found in more. Paul says contentment is found in being reliant and dependent upon Jesus. Now that verse that we saw at the end, Philippians 4.13, so incredibly well known. When we started our, our year this year, this calendar year on the series called Still, that had another verse that we talked about that gets used out of context so much. That verse is, be still and know that I am God. And we've just said that people have kind of mis misconstrued that and use it in every context under the sun. This verse is even more that problem. Take a look. Here's some pictures I found on the internet. This is usually what, when I grew up in Christian school, these were the posters around my classroom. It's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. Look at, there's even a cross on the football, right? Uh, like if you, if you have Jesus in your corner, touchdowns are going to come your way. And that's, that's what I remember hearing that verse misapplied to often. Look at this other one. I thought this one was humorous. So here's the verse at the top. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you look at it and you go, there's a bunch of cake pops. What's that about? This is actually a dieting program. And they're kind of looking in the face of dessert. I can say no, because I've got Christ. I love this last one. It's a playoff of diary of a wimpy kid. Take a look at the picture. I'm no wimp. Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So it's just kind of taking this verse and applying it to all these areas that, that really aren't what this is about. Paul is really clear in the context we've read. I can do all things through Christ. I can be content in every situation because I rely on Jesus for everything. Maybe this verse is best shown in this picture. This is a picture of a little girl who's a part of the Compassion International Project in one of the different towns around the world, cities around the world. And I love this picture because here you can see she's got clothes on her body and she's got a warm meal and that's about all she has. But there's this glow of contentment and gratitude and satisfaction in that. And this is Paul saying, I've learned to be content when I have just the basics. And then look at this next picture. And I've learned to be content in much, right? <laughs> this is us at this dining room, at this cruise. And it was amazing, the food that they brought out. And I realized in this really high swanky thing, the, the more exquisite the meal, the smaller the portion. So I just hung out at the Lido deck all the time. And I was, I'm just a simple guy. All right, number two in your notes, moving on. Um, God is pleased when you give financially to extend the gospel. God is pleased when you give financially to extend the gospel. Philippians 4.14, yet it was good of you, Paul writes, to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.
So here's Paul, and he's, we've seen this before, very specifically thanking them, grateful to them, and even commending them for their sacrificial, consistent giving to him as he t- keeps taking the gospel to new people. Here's what you just process. All the Philippians doing were, were doing was what was done for them, meaning other people had financially resourced Paul so he could bring the gospel to Philippi, and now that they had received the gospel, gospel, they just said, we just want to keep making that opportunity available for other people who don't know this great Savior yet. And God's using Paul in remarkable ways. We simply want to keep encouraging him and funding him so he can go to the uttermost reaches of the world. Look at the word that Paul uses. This is a word that we've seen consistently in the book of Philippians. He uses the word koinonia again. In that phrase, you've shared in my troubles, that's that idea again of a commonality, of having some sort of partnership. And Paul's saying that you have been such good partners with me all the way through. He recounts that their partnership goes all the way back to when they had first received and responded to the gospel and how they had had opportunities to continue to help him even when no one else did. This particular group of Jesus followers are very, um, just very dear to Paul, not only because they're his biggest supporters, but because they have this commonness and mission. They want to see the gospel extended. They had this passion to see Paul be a resource to go to places where the gospel hadn't been heard yet. And he writes this, he writes that their financial gifts are, is really not the point, meaning it's not as though he needs them or is dependent on them. God's going to take care of him one way or the other. But his concern for them is that they would have even more and more, quote, credited to their account, credited to their account in terms of their generosity and their kindness in meeting of needs. I think this begs a really interesting question. Does an individual or a local church have, quote, an account as it were, with God that is evaluated either positively or negatively? It's a good question to ask because Paul says, I want much more, more and more to go into your account as a result of your sacrificial, generous giving. Now, by the way, one thing to note, don't miss the array of accounting terms. Paul uses very simple terms from the first century related to accounting issues. And that word, I wanted it to be credited to your account, was a very understood common word of commerce. Everyone in the marketplace would have known and used this word. So Paul's not spiritualizing this and creating some new category of something. He's using terms they all understand. And he's saying that there's something about your sacrificial giving, your generosity towards me and funding the mission of the gospel that God is going to evaluate well. Huh. That's an interesting concept, interesting thing to think about. I want you to see that Paul could have chosen to use all kinds of different, maybe even more spiritually sounding words, but he didn't. He chose to use words they could relate to and easily understand related to their own businesses or related to their own personal finances. I told you a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter two that I am very excited in our future to begin building more and more of a, 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 an understanding of stewardship. I feel like there, though there are pockets, there are definitely people who are stewarding well what God's given them. And there are some things we have done tangentially related to stewardship, but we have not made much of how important it is to understand that what's yours is not yours. But you've been entrusted with everything you have from your master and Lord. And I really am excited to begin to teach more and more about this idea of stewardship because it's so important, not only for us as a people and us as a church, but it's important for you personally because everything in my life changed financially when I understood that what's mine isn't mine. I thought for a long time I had worked hard for what was mine and I had totally failed and misunderstood that everything that comes into my life, both the things, quote, I work hard for, as well as the things that come out of nowhere of gifts and kindness, those are all from God. And when God gives them to me, they're supposed to be reinvested wisely according to his kingdom, according to his standards, not my own or for my own personal comfort. 
So this is a powerful idea and something that I'm excited for us to grow in. Uh, there's a lot of reasons maybe why we haven't talked more openly and more thoughtfully and more consistently about stewardship, but I'm excited to change that. I'm excited in the next month in November, we're going to dive in and actually look at a series on generosity and just talk about what does this mean from God's standard, God's point of view. Then it all comes back to when we understand by definition what a steward is. A steward doesn't own anything of which he or she has been given for that time, and their evaluation is totally based on how they invest their master's resources. This applies to every area of our lives, by the way, not just finances, but how you invest your time, how you invest your giftedness, how you invest your experiences. All of those things are all things that God's going to evaluate. I showed you earlier today um, a picture in Corinth. The second slide was me next to the Bema seat. And the Bema seat was a concept that, to me, I don't think I'd ever even heard of until I was 18 years old. And I've told you this story before. I'm at church. I come, I'm a college freshman. I come home on a Sunday, and um, a, a guy is just kind of preaching, doing his thing. He reads this passage, and he would go on for the next 25 minutes talking about God knows what, but I just stayed locked on the next words I'm going to read to you. And this absolutely transformed the way I thought, the way I think today about what my life is ultimately about and what I'm going to be evaluated by. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, also 2 Corinthians 5, talks about this same concept. This is what it says. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones... Note, all of those materials are refined by fire, not destroyed. Or wood, hay, or straw, things that are destroyed by fire. Their work will be shown for what it is because the capital D day, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. You see, I remember hearing that passage as an 18-year-old college freshman and being absolutely blown away with the idea that as someone who had put my faith in Christ, my life was ultimately going to be evaluated, not on the basis of being saved or not, not on the basis, as the last phrase says, of escaping the house, as it were, that's burning, but evaluated by what I built with, what I invested with in my life. And I could actually live my entire life and have nothing to show for it for an eternal value. That day stopped me in my tracks. I don't think I'd ever heard of this Bema seat judgment in my life. And the day when I read about it, I just stopped and I thought, God, not only is that incredibly poor stewardship to you, but what an incredibly wasted life if I were to live it that way. I had a great conversation on the plaza after the first service today and it was powerful to hear from someone saying that that was significant for them to hear today. And I just encourage that individuals we were talking to say, no, no matter where you are, 18 or 80, to hear those words and understand that God is going to evaluate your life in Christ. Today's the day to be building with the things that are going to last. And in this passage, one of the things that we see is the way that we deal with our financial resources, investing them in things that extend the gospel here locally and around the world. That is one of the things. It's not the only thing that'll be evaluated, but it's one for sure. And by the way, what I loved about that picture I got to show you of the Bema seat, when we, growing up in, in church, like I said, I hadn't even really heard of that till I got older. But since then, I've heard of the Bema seat judgment. If you were here with us in our After This Life series, we spent a whole day on that, a whole Sunday, just talking what that is. But within that, um, if we've heard that term and we've kind of thought that's like a spiritual term, like a, a churchy idea, the Bema Seat. In the first century, no one thought that. The Bema Seat was this place in every city, every downtown Agora area where there was a Bema Seat. It was a place of judgment, a place of decision-making, a place where someone would decide upon between one person and the other who was right or what was going to happen in a sequence of situations. So Paul borrowed an everyday ordinary term and said, just like you're familiar in the first century with a Bema Seat, with a time of reckoning, so God will have a time of evaluation based on how you live your 
your life in him. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is not about if you are safe in the arms of God or not. This is just simply, what did you do with your life once you put your faith in Jesus? Paul says to the Philippian church, you have invested well. My hope and my prayer is that God will continue to say to Trinity Church, you have invested well. Just next month, we are going to engage an offering that we've done for the last eight or nine years called Advent Conspiracy. It's one of my favorite things that we do where we simply take a special offering simply so we can give it away. We're going to do it again because we really believe that's what God would have us do is that posture of generosity, especially during the Christmas season. And we do that, and there's great avenues and aspects of Trinity that are very generous and thoughtful towards our community and towards others. But I know, I know there is so much more that we could be about and so much more that we would hear the commendation of God about if we would say, God, what matters most is your economy, your standards, not my comfort. And so I'm excited to kind of dive in. And I really think the Philippian church has done a great job of being an example to us in that. Look at how he goes on to finish. He says that, that his God, their God, will meet all of their needs. And the question is, from what storehouse, from what resources, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus? God is going to supply everything they need moving forward out of the same vast resources of where he supplied initially their salvation. And they know that they are in Christ, that they are right in him. Jesus met, paid the debt in full. So now they can know out of that great joy of going, man, if God completely met my debt in Jesus, how much more will he continue to take care of me? I can entrust that to him as well. All right, look at the final statement of great praise. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. In other words, yay God. Finally today, number three, being an intentional influencer is something you can do. Being an intentional influencer is something you can do. We're finishing up chapter four, verse 21. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. Watch this, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. Now, this is a relatively typical signing off, a final greeting from Paul that you could read in his letter to the Galatians or in his letter to the Ephesians. But what's interesting, something gets lost on us that would have not gotten lost in the first century. When the believers at Philippi would have been reading this letter and they come to the end and Paul's saying, oh, by the way, all the people in Caesar's household, they want to tell you uh, greetings as well. Those who are in Christ, they send your greetings. This is what that would have been like. For us today, it's as though it'd be like all the Jesus followers in North Korea send you their greetings, especially those in Kim Jong-un's household. That's what we would have read. That's what would have caused us to go, whoa, whoa, what? Or all the Jesus followers in Russia send you their greetings, especially those in Vladimir Putin's household. Because here's the point, Caesar, Caesar worship, remember we said Rome or uh, Philippi was a Roman province. So it wasn't just under the direction of Rome. It was like a Rome unique city that they had established. And so what was rampant through Rome was Caesar worship. We established that back in week one of the series. And so Caesar worship was this huge deal. Remember we said it was a huge thing when Paul said, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because everyone in that era was saying, no, Caesar is Lord. So Paul was being very political, very contemporary when he was striking out and saying that statement. It wasn't just a thing to say or a churchy phrase. Paul was saying, hey, there's someone who's Lord and it's not Caesar. His name is Jesus. So Caesar was one who was at this time, especially the current Caesar was very much opposed to the growing influence of the church. So for Paul to say, God has used me to reach people in Caesar's household, in Caesar's oikos, that's that word, his relational world, that would have been just stunning to the Philippian Christians. But remember what Paul said at the beginning in chapter one. You are concerned that I'm not able to go out and bring the gospel to people, and that's my heartbeat, what I want to do. But don't be concerned. The gospel isn't chained just because I am. 
Everyone chained to me is hearing it. Even those connected, those who would have no reason to come down into a Roman prison or any kind of prison from Caesar's household, those were actually coming to have audience with Paul so he could share this great news of Jesus. Now, you and I hear that and we go, man, that's so awesome, Todd. But you know what? I'm not like Paul. Paul's this amazing church planner, amazingly gifted, for sure had the gift of evangelism among other things. I just don't and I can't. And can I tell you again? Can I tell you again? One thing that I love about the way that the gospel continues to get passed on from person to person most consistently and most effectively has very little to do with people who have the gift of evangelism and has everything to do with people who have a thoughtfulness of influence. You see, I love being able to talk about how God wants to use you in your relational world because I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism. There are people at Trinity who do. I'm in awe of you. Today, after, after church, you're going to walk up to someone in and out today, and you're going to say, you know what? That's a great-looking burger. Did you thank God for that first? And I'm going to go, that's the corniest thing I've ever heard in the world. But you're going to say it like it just rolls off your tongue. And you're going to say, and you know what? The great thing about God is he doesn't just supply hamburgers. God does something better. He supplies. And you're going to do this whole thing. And I'm going to sit there. If I'm standing next to you, I'm going to feel really weird right about now. Because we're going up to someone we've never met before. And you're going to do that. And if they don't respond to anything you have to say, it's like water off a duck's back. And you just go on to the next person. I can't do that. I've always been horrible at that. And I never will be good at it. Some of you are, and I love that, but watch this. Being a person of intentional influence is evangelism for the rest of us. It does not matter if you have a gift to be able to share the gospel eloquently with people. It doesn't matter if you have a gift to being able to strike up conversations out of the blue with someone. What matters is, would you be a person who takes seriously that God is supernaturally, strategically placed you in a relational world of people that he wants to use you to be a source of Jesus' influence in their lives. That's what matters. And I want you to hear this again today. You can do that. You can do that. Look in your notes. This is a reminder of stuff we've talked about before and we'll keep talking about. God isn't asking you to reach the whole world, but he's given you a role as his ambassador for you to begin reaching your world. God isn't asking you to reach the whole world, but he wants you to begin with those that God has put in your world and one of our core values, we've been sharing these kind of repeatedly over the last few weeks, this one, your calling is to influence your world with Jesus. It's just deeply connected to our mission of being a people rooted in Jesus, reaching our worlds. And you have a calling, every single one of us, there's no one who doesn't fit this group because every one of us have a group of people that we're doing life with that are watching us as we're following Jesus and people we get to influence. Now, I want you to know this, where it begins today. Some of us are so intimidated by this whole idea. Let me help you. It actually begins by first identifying and first praying for the people in your worlds. It doesn't even begin with how can I start sharing this or how can I invite them to that? This is as simple as it is. At every exit today when you leave are these same cards. They're there almost every single week. And it's just a place for you to write down, these are the people in my world these are the people I'm doing life with. Some of them love Jesus, some of them don't yet. Some of them are unconvinced. But I'm gonna make a list of these people and I'm gonna begin praying for these people on my list. That's where intentional influence begins is identifying the people in your world and consistently praying for them. And then the beautiful thing happens as you are praying, God, would you give me an opportunity to demonstrate unique kindness and graciousness towards this person this week? God, would you start doing something to stir up this spiritual deadness in this person's life that I'm doing life with, because we know we can't make anyone believe anything. We actually know that everyone, including ourselves, we're spiritually dead on arrival, according to um, Ephesians chapter two. So instead we pray, God, would you stir the waters? God, would you do a work to begin waking them up? And God, I just simply wanna be a part of what you're doing in their lives. There are people here today in this service who are here and who are following Jesus because someone loved them enough to tell them and begin sharing with them, inviting them 
to some place called Trinity Church, and even more importantly, to get to know this great Jesus. This is what I always keep coming back to when I think about this idea. Praise God. Because almost probably 90% of the people in this service came to Christ because someone or some ones were telling you. It wasn't out of the blue and just some random thing on a TV. You actually had people investing in your life, praying for you. Praise God that the person who shared with you didn't keep it to themselves. And all I want to do is encourage you, don't keep it to yourself. Influence the people in your relational world with this great news of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. This is how we end it this week. This is what we walk out towards. As you rely on Jesus, invest yourself. Invest yourself wisely. Your finances and your influence for eternal gain. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this book of Philippians. Thank you for how encouraging and how um, just growth-based it's been for us, for me. And I thank you so much for this thread of joy that has just touched on something every single week that how can we know your complete and full and rich joy? And we know it's not circumstantial. We know there's nothing that can steal our joy as long as our joy is rooted in what you've already done for us. So God, this week, reattach our joy to who you are and what you've already accomplished on our behalf. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, this all sounds great, but I, I don't even know where to begin. I, I, I've tried to be religious or I've, I've tried to be good on my own, but at the end of the day, this kind of relationship that you're talking about with Jesus, it's not something I've ever taken a first step towards. And I wanna tell you, you can, right here and right now, by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior, admitting that you've lived life on your terms, not on God's, and as a result, you already knew it before you walked in the door today. There's a problem in the relationship with God. Be believe. Believe not in self-sufficiency and just trying harder to be gooder. Instead, believe. Believe that what Jesus did in living a sinless life, in dying a sacrificial death, and being raised supernaturally in the third day, Believe that what Jesus did, he did for you, not just the person you're sitting next to, not just the person across this worship center. He did it for you to make a way for you to be right with the creator of the universe. See is choose. Choose today to say, Jesus, I put my hope, my confidence, my trust in what you've already done for me. And I want to live my life simply following the pattern you've given. That's where new life begins. And I want to encourage you, if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, that's how it begins. Make that decision today. Father, this week would we be a people who in a new and fresh way live in contentment. A people who in a new and a fresh way understand stewardship. And people who in a new and fresh way are living as intentional influencers in our worlds. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.